Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you all. We are there. We are at the end of the work week, if days even matter to you anymore. Uh, cloudy today, light dusting of snow as expected. Not going to stick on the ground, though. A high of 2, partly cloudy tonight, low minus 3. Sunny on Saturday, high 9, partly sunny, risk of a, a shower late on Sunday, high 10, partly sunny on Monday, high 11, not too shabby for a, a weekend forecast. I don't know about you, but um, I just, I don't know. When you work at the morning shift, and I'm not uh, complaining because I kind of like mornings at this point. Well, one thing that always kind of, I think, is um, just weird about our sleep patterns and something I want to get into a little bit on the show uh, next week is just, you know, how we're all sleeping during this, just because there's some interesting stories and studies coming out about people sleeping, uh, not sleeping. Um, I'm always worried about uh, sleeping in and no one being here to, to host the show or anything or do whatever I'm doing in the mornings when I'm not hosting shows. And it's kind of, to me, it's like, there's that subconscious where you just wake up this morning. I woke up like I've, I've been setting my alarm for three 30. I'll just t take my time, get it. I'll roll out a bit at three 45, do everything, start, you know, working on show prep today. I woke up at like three 10 or something like that. And just could not, you know, even get a little bit. I, I woke up. I know that's a lie. I woke up like two 50. I, I uh, was able to go back to sleep for about 20 minutes, woke up again, and just, uh, you can't uh, can't go back to sleep. So uh, the uh, the long and the short of it is I am uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready for everyone uh, this morning. Hope uh, you're uh, just uh, getting that uh, dust out of your eyes as you wake up this morning. Uh, I saw an interesting story, and I the uh, the royals out of england always just kind of annoy me just cuz especially the term like when uh, prince harry and uh, meghan markle decided to retire or step down as senior royals and the whole hubbub that followed that and then we ha had this new term that i was it's been used before but it was used like a ton over and over again working royals they're stepping away from being working royals like what is a working royal none of the royals actually work they don't work they do royal work, but that's not work work, you know? So the term working royal has always just kind of annoyed me. That said, if we go to a Sweden, and I apologize, I am not up to date on my uh, royal watching out of Sweden. I know everyone else is. I'm, be I'm behind the, the curve on this. Uh, Princess Sophia of Sweden has... Um, put away the uh, the tiara and she has started working in the hospital in Sweden. She is not uh, you know a, a full-on nurse but she will be assisting hospital staff with non-medical related tasks. She will be um, helping uh, clean a lot of uh, uh, equipment. Uh, she and others will be doing shifts in the kitchen. They'll be just cleaning in general. Uh, 
They will be providing support to doctors and nurses, she and some others who have uh, signed up to, to do this. And that is fantastic. Uh, now, she is, I guess, she and her husband uh, are not the, the crown prince and princess. Uh, someone else is. So, and their family was recently, or their kids are no longer going to be referred to as his and her royal highness. So they're the Swedish equivalent of uh, Harry and, and Meghan, I guess. But uh, there is a working royal. And so uh, good on her for uh, stepping in and helping out with uh, some of the situation in uh, Sweden where some of their hospitals are a little bit overrun. And uh, I thought that was uh, great to see. I, like uh, many other people, watched uh, Tiger King. One of uh, the people behind Tiger King is a guy by the name of Eric Good. He is not just a uh, filmmaker. He is apparently an artist, entrepreneur, and conservationist, which is where the... Uh, filmmaking came in he owns a number of hotels and restaurants in manhattan and recently sold interest in one of his sites made about 60 million dollars he has laid off all of his staff including long-term staff that have worked for him for about 20 years some of them are in rough shape now you know, I'm not going to, I hate it when people spend other people's money. So for some of his employees, it may be better to try and access any of the relief programs that are coming out of the United States. The same way, you know, in Canada, there are some people who are working part-time. It's better to, you know, go after some of like the Serb stuff from the government rather than if you don't have enough hours, just because everyone's kind of cutting back, you know, that makes sense. But I do know of, you know, entrepreneurs, business people in London who have, you know, long-term employees who have tried to do as much as they can for them, even if their business has been closed through all of this. So to see, uh, you know, this guy who's got a lot of money, I mean, you don't just give out. I mean, there's got to be something you can do. And so the guy, he's got a ton of cash. He could be helping his employees more than he uh, appears to be when people work for you for 20 years, they deserve a bit more uh, loyalty that they've given you in return. So that's a little bit disappointing to see from the, uh, the director of Tiger King. Uh, one quick story also I wanted to mention was um, I might've seen the story at the, uh, out of Toronto where the Toronto zoo is looking for financial help costs a million dollars a year to feed animals at the Toronto Zoo. Now, uh, full disclosure, my brother-in-law works at the uh, Toronto Zoo. And so one of, uh, you know, the things I thought of a little bit with Tiger King is people, all the animal uh, activists and advocates who rise up and don't like animals in captivity. You know, zoos like the Toronto Zoo are a good spot for animals to be. They do a lot of conservation work in addition to uh, the zoo itself, the zoo helps fund a lot of the conservation work. So the the Tiger Kings of the world, where they have these roadside zoos, those are not the zoos we should strive for. If we're going to have animals in captivity, and in some cases, that's the way it has to be, zoos like the Toronto Zoo, and the Toronto Zoo is not the only one, are, you know, a wonderful resource. And so... 
I, I hope they get the funding they need because this has the COVID-19 pandemic has affected them as much as it has anyone else. And so if we uh, care about animals, and uh, I do, uh, assisting the Toronto Zoo is a wonderful way to help the uh, conservationist wing of uh, the Toronto Zoo and everything they do because uh, they, they do a lot of uh, really good stuff. Again, uh, full disclosure of my brother-in-law working there, but uh, nonetheless, they do do uh, great, great work. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Happy to have you along with us for the ride uh, today here at uh, 980 CFPL and, of uh, course, Radio London. We are doing what we can to recognize uh, local businesses with our locally owned and awesome businesses of the day. Uh, today's businesses are brought to you courtesy of Ontario West Insurance Brokers. I want to let you know about Bernie's Bar and Grill in Byron. You can uh, find them online at berniesbarandgrill.com. They're located at 1290 Byron Baseline Road. Phone number is 519-471-7098. They are open for takeout. They're also available on Uber Eats. And they are offering $5 pints and $4 bottles with uh, takeout. Restaurants can now uh, sell alcohol with uh, their uh, takeout orders, uh, you may uh, recall. They do have a... uh, a menu you can check out online. So check that out at berniesbarandgrill.com. Also want to let you know about Forked River Brewing Company. They are located at 45 Pacific Court, Unit 4 in London. Uh, 519-913-2337 are the numbers, is the number for them. If you want to avoid any of the uh, lineups at the LCBO or at the beer store, you can have uh, Forked River uh, uh just or fresh uh, to your uh, to your uh, home. Go to uh, store.forkedriverbrewing.com. Retail at the breweries open uh, Tuesday to Saturday, twelve to six. Curbside pickup is available using the in-store pickup option online, and they do have free delivery in London on orders of fifty dollars or more using the code London Free Ship. That's L N D N Free Ship and orders over $100 uh, province-wide. London and Middlesex health officials reported two new deaths and eight new cases, along with one additional outbreak of the uh, novel coronavirus in the area on Thursday. Health officials in Lambton County reported a second outbreak, and Sarnia's Hospital reported 11 recent staff infections. Specific details about the two deaths and the eight cases in London, Middlesex, were not immediately available. It brings the total number of cases confirmed in London and Middlesex up to 258. We now have a total of 14 deaths. Uh, two cases were also marked as resolved, so we now have a total of 120 resolved cases. We had a pretty quiet day on Wednesday. One death, three new cases were reported. Uh, 43 cases, 36 residents, 16 staff, and two deaths in London and Middlesex have been reported at long-term care homes with nine cases. That includes uh, seven uh, residents and two staff at uh, retirement homes. Ten of the 13 outbreaks declared in London and Middlesex 
since the start of the pandemic have been at long-term care and retirement homes. That pretty much mirrors what we have seen across the province and across the country in terms of the uh, significant impact uh, to long-term care homes. On Wednesday, Premier Doug Ford opened the door to systemic changes to the province's long-term care system. He issued an emergency order to prevent long-term care staff from working at multiple homes in addition to some other measures. Ontario itself had another 500 cases yesterday. We had another 38 deaths yesterday. We are almost at 9,000 cases in the province. The growth in total cases has been relatively low for about a week, and Ontario health officials have said the peak is expected this week. Total number of people in hospital with COVID-19, though, did grow slightly to 807. For uh, the country, we're over 30,000 confirmed cases. So I was a little off yesterday on my prediction that we wouldn't get to 30,000. Wish I was uh, right, but uh, that's where we're at. We're just uh, under uh, 1,200 deaths, 1,196 uh, to be exact for the entire country. Ontario, Quebec remain the hardest hit parts of the country. Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, says more than 90% of those who have died in the country are over the age of 60. Half of them lived in long-term care homes. Tam is now predicting between 1,200 and 1,600 deaths from COVID-19 by next Tuesday. So we're almost at uh, 1,200 now. You're looking at about another 400 over Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Overall, though, on the plus side, uh, the curve is bending when it comes to the country. As we look at uh, new infections. So there is positives out there and more reason to continue on with uh, what we are doing. We're going to have to wait until May the 1st until we get an official word about whether the economy is in a recession. I think uh, we all kind of know what's coming here, though. C.D. Howe's Institute uh, of uh, Business Psycho Council held a special meeting yesterday to uh, just look into that question. Jeffrey, or sorry, Jeremy Cronick, uh, co-chair of the council, says the group of senior economists voted on the subject but will not release an official statement until economic growth numbers from February are released by Stats Canada at the end of the month. The council defines a recession as a pronounced, persistent, and pervasive decline in aggregate economic activity. Again, uh, based on what's going on right now, I would say we are uh, heading that direction. Uh, the classic definition has been two consecutive quarters of ne uh, negative economic growth, but uh, these are unusual times, to say the least. Uh, just real quick, a uh, team of Ontario researchers say they are, they are working on a 30-minute home-based COVID-19 test that could hit the market soon. These are researchers out of McMaster University. They say the concept is to come up with something new that offers an alternative to the current lab-tested lab-based tests that uh, take days for results. This would be different than the one we heard about to start the week out of Ottawa, that company, uh, Spartan, that has a, a rapid portable test cube. Uh, so the more rapid tests we have, the better. The more rapid tests we have, the better off we'll be when we do start to wind down these restrictions on where we're at. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. Good morning at 6.30. I'm Scott Monick in downtown London. 
It's mainly cloudy and minus two. Canada's confirmed and presumptive COVID-19 case count has now reached 30,000. We'll have details on the way, but first we'll check in with the Lexus of London Traffic Centre and Nick Van Overloop. Just some light traffic delays on main roads and intersections inside the city. If you are traveling the major highways, the 401, 402 to Sarnia and 403 to Brantford and Hamilton are trouble-free. As always, if you see a traffic tie-up or collision, call us hands-free in the newsroom at 519-931-6098. And now from the Bentley Hearing Services Weather Centre... Here's John Wilson. I hate to tell you, but there's more snow coming. The good news is we're right on the northern edges of it, and we won't get much, but probably a coating on grassy surfaces while down toward Lake Erie and Port Stanley, two or three centimeters, Windsor-Chatham as well. However, I mean, it is mid-April. This won't last. It'll melt most of it. Two degrees to high, minus three overnight. Tomorrow it'll be gone, sunny and nine. Sunday, partly sunny, risk of an afternoon or evening shower, though, and 10 degrees. And then Monday, sunny to start at least and 11. Today's high, too. Right now, it's minus two. Canada's confirmed and presumptive COVID-19 case count has hit 30,106. The virus has claimed 1,196 lives across the country. The nation's top physician says the overall curve is bending when it comes to the number of new infections. But Dr. Teresa Tam says the death rate is higher than expected because of so many outbreaks in long-term care centers. Tam says models are now predicting between 1,200 and about 1,600 deaths from COVID-19 by next Tuesday. Nearly 200 bus drivers in London are on unpaid leave amid growing concerns about the pandemic. The Amalgamated Transit Union Division 741 reports that as of Tuesday, 181 drivers had gone on unpaid leave, which represents roughly 40% of all LTC drivers. Earlier this week, the London Transit Commission announced additional service reductions with fewer drivers available. Those reductions will take effect on Sunday. Ontario has made a regulatory change allowing insurance companies to provide auto premium rebates for up to 12 months after the COVID-19 crisis has ended. Finance Minister Rod Phillips isn't dictating any specific percentage of rebates, but says he will be watching to see how the companies respond. He says some have already provided relief for drivers, given that far fewer people are actually on the road. U.S. President Donald Trump is determined to restart the economy that's struggling during the COVID-19 pandemic. He has given governors a roadmap for recovery, laying out a phased approach to restoring normal activity. The new guidelines are aimed at easing restrictions in areas with low transmission of the coronavirus while holding the line in harder-hit locations. Time now for sports. Powered by Hanford's Tire and Service, the defending Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues have worked out a four-year extension with newly acquired defenseman Marco Scandella. The deal is worth $13.1 million and has an annual salary cap hit of $3.27 million through the 2023-24 season. Time for a Market Minute and from the eWorkplace Business Center, here is Blake Lambert. The S&P TSX Composite Index closed down 59 points at 13,899. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 33 points at 23,537. The S&P 500 Index was up 16 points at 2,799, while the Nasdaq Composite was up 139 points at 8,532. Japan's Nikkei surged this morning 604 points to close at 19,894. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 71.08 cents U.S. Coming up next, more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock right here on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. 
Good morning, everybody. Happy to have you along with us on the program today. Cloudy today, a light dusting of snow as expected. Won't stick it to the ground, though. High of two, partly cloudy tonight, low minus three. In the third hour of the program, we are going to talk about what a reopening of the economy might look like when we get to the point where we lift social distancing guidelines, which is still weeks away. But it's something worth uh, looking into since, you know, we are being told by health officials the peak is near, or they believe the peak is near for Ontario. So I think at a certain point, people are going to start wondering, well, what happens next and how we do this. So we're going to get into that in a more complete way in the third hour. With that in mind, though, as a bit of an appetizer, I want to look what could be in store for restaurants as they start to reopen by using Los Angeles as an example and what they are looking at and whether we'd like to do the same here. Because I think it's likely we will have something similar to what they do. I would imagine a lot of restaurants, you know, not just, you know, in California or Ontario, I think pretty much everywhere are going to be doing something pretty much similar. Uh, but here's what they're doing in L.A. So on Tuesday, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom hinted at the changes that uh, both restaurants and diners are going to be uh, confronted with when social distancing measures are loosened. So uh, Newsom said during a press briefing, you may be having dinner with a waiter who wears gloves, maybe a face mask. You might have dinner where the menu is disposable, where half the tables in the restaurants uh, no longer appear, where your temperature is checked before you walk into the establishment. These are the likely scenarios. So that might sound a bit radical, but they are a reality I think for a lot of uh, countries where dining rooms have reopened already. So it's logical to expect that we are going to see something similar to that. In cities in China, where the spread of the novel coronavirus has uh, slowed down, restaurants are cautiously reopening. Operators there are required to issue new masks to employees every four hours, keep safe distances between tables, and take the temperature of diners. So are we ready uh, for this? I mean, it's better than nothing. And frankly, I would welcome a temperature check. When I entered a a restaurant, just as a mini symptom check, even though it would be anything close to an actual test or an actual check, I mean, it can't hurt. And if the server has to wear gloves and a mask, then so be it. In fact, I'd rather dine at a restaurant that has those things than one that doesn't until we know we're out of the woods on this. And just when we get to the point where we can relax the guidelines doesn't mean we are going to be out of the woods. We will be out of the woods when we get that vaccine and we can really look at, you know, life returning to normal. Uh, one thing with this, though, I do wonder is if we're going to have enough gloves and masks and PPP, PPE for uh, people. If we're already seeing a lot of workers right now who don't have access to what they need and they're the essential workers. so. If everyone, like by everyone, I mean, you know, governments, businesses, if they can, isn't ordering gloves and masks right now, then they should be. 
for this reopening of the economy when it happens. I do also wonder what happens with bars. I think bars are a, a different uh, position than restaurants. Restaurants, it's the the whole point of going there is, you know, a bit of privacy in terms of you and whoever you go with. With bars, you can be closer together. With bars, you go to, you know, sometimes to watch the game. Are people going to want to go to bars if games aren't on TV with sports? I think people, after all this, are going to want to be social, so that's not necessarily a, a big problem. But bars are in a, a bit of a, a, a different situation. At least with restaurants, you can you know look at turnover. So if people are lining up to get in, you have a, you know a natural expectation for the course of a meal, and you know how long it takes to turn over a table, and you know you can make some money with bars. You you know you kind of want the the customer to be there for a while right it's not just you know come in for 30 minutes and leave so um the difference between restaurants and bars i think is going to be an interesting interesting one or do bars just almost like kind of act like restaurants and that's the way to get around it whatever we can do uh, to make everyone um, as profitable as can as soon as possible uh, i'm in favor of obviously but it's um i think it's just an interesting conversation to have. We should be thinking about it now as opposed to, you know, six weeks from now or five weeks or seven weeks or whatever the case might be. The uh, coronavirus has uh, changed many aspects of our lives, including how we shop for groceries. Some people may have overbought certain items or have foods nearing their best before dates and are unsure if they should consume them. Others uh, might be pulling stuff out of your pantry. You're not sure about whether or not something is uh, safe to eat or not. Uh, one thing dietitians do say is there is a difference between a best before date and an expiration date. So according to the government of Canada, best before dates tell you when the durable life period of a prepackaged food ends. Durable life means the amount of time that an unopened food product will retain its freshness, taste, and nutritional value if stored properly. Expiry dates are different. Uh, the government says expi expiration dates are required only on certain foods that have strict compositional and nutritional specifications which might not be met after the expiration date. So those foods would include baby formula and nutritional supplements, and it is not advisable to eat expired foods. But you do have wiggle room for best before dates, with uh, food with best before dates. So stuff like, you know, sugar, uh, honey, Corn syrup, molasses, if you're pulling some of this out of your uh, pantry, that doesn't spoil. By the way, uh, if you want to make uh, a, a great barbecue sauce, uh, I, I use a, a Bobby Flay recipe. Uh, molasses is uh, required uh, for it. Uh, so if you have some molasses, Google Bobby Flay uh, barbecue sauce. I guarantee you it's great. And you'll feel like a million bucks because you made it yourself. Uh, but so I, it's important to know that that's a weird tangent, but it's important to know uh, the difference between expiration and best before dates, because that is 
a, a an important distinction that should be made. We will uh, take a quick break. When we come back, we will have more of the morning show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, happy to have you along with us today. Hope your uh, early morning is going well. TGIF. Today is a Friday, by the way. I say that because according to a new survey, 58% of respondents say they have trouble remembering what day it is most of the time because all the days are blending together. Google searches for what day it is have spiked. A year ago, Google rated the search interest at a 61 out of 100. Now it's a 100 out of 100. <laughs> Let me just say, though, a year ago, 61 out of 100? People asking what day it is? I don't understand why you have to Google it when you're on a computer and the date's right there. Or you're on a phone, and the date's on the main screen. Like, I'm not saying you wake up, oh, is today Wednesday, is today Thursday? I get that part. You know, on, on a normal time, even I go, go back a year, there's times, you know, if you have a long week, and it feels like it's a Tuesday or a Thursday, it's really just, you know, a Wednesday or whatever. You know, you get it. You don't have to Google it. You can just look at your phone. The uh, Tour de France has been postponed due to the coronavirus. It was supposed to begin June 27th. No word yet on a new date when all the riders can uh, ride around France and cheat. Rita Wilson, I was talking to uh, Gail King recently about what she and Tom Hanks went through with the coronavirus and the uh, extreme side effects she suffered from taking chloroquine. This, that's the uh, drug that uh, Donald Trump has been uh, pushing people to take. She said when she came down with the disease, she was very tired, extremely achy. She felt uncomfortable, did not want to be touched. She had a fever that reached 102 degrees. By day nine, she got chills, lost her sense of taste and smell. Uh, Tom Hanks, she said, did not have as high a fever, did not lose his sense of taste and smell. She was given that drug, saying she was not sure if it worked or if it was just time for her fever to break. Is that's what happened after she was given the drug. Still, she cautioned that she experienced extreme side effects after taking it, including being completely nauseous, having vertigo, and her muscles becoming very weak. San Francisco may have dodged a bullet when the 49ers blew the Super Bowl. A new report notes that the first cases of COVID-19 in San Francisco were treated just after the game. So a victory parade with a million people might have caused an outbreak in the city months ago. The COVID-19 pandemic is going to inspire a lot of what-ifs, especially with how things could have been handled differently. But this has got to be one of those positive what-ifs, right? Like if San Francisco beats Kansas City to win the Super Bowl, they have, you know, a million people for a victory parade. Like, think of how many people were in Toronto for after the Raptors won the NBA championship last year. 
That would uh, be insane. Like that losing the Super Bowl might have cost, might have sa- saved lives in San Francisco. Something like this has happened before. Thousands of people were infected during Philadelphia's World War I parade back in the days of the 1918 Spanish flu. That set off a second wave of deaths. So a, so a doctor at a San Francisco was quoted as saying, it may go down in the annals as being a brutal sports loss, but one that saved many lives. So when you think about it, the Toronto Maple Leafs have been saving uh, Toronto and Leafs fans from unknown viruses for decades. So a crazy stat the other day, the average person is streaming eight hours of content a day during lockdown. So a full third of their day is being spending is being spent watching TV, which to me is almost like it's impressive. I'm not even mad. Like how how do you 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 watch eight hours a day? How like how do you like how do you how do you do that? Three and four people admit they're streaming. Like, how do you do that? Like eight hours a day? Three and four people admit they're streaming more content than normal right now. Unless it's something where you've got the TV going on all the time in the background. That would make sense, I guess. But how do you eight hour eight hours a day? People. Eight eight hours a day. Eight hours a day. Eight hours a day. That, that that blows my mind. Read a book. People, read a book. There's not enough on TV to watch eight hours a day. Binge watch, great, sure. Fill your boots. There's there's lots of TV out there, obviously. If you haven't watched Sopranos, go watch Sopranos. If you haven't watched Cheers, have I told you about Cheers lately? Cheers is a fantastic show. If you haven't watched Cheers... You got, you know, multiple seasons, 20 episodes a season. You'll be set. Go watch Cheers. Great show. One of the best shows ever. Ted Danson. He's fantastic. You don't have to watch it all at once, though. You know, spread it out. Eight hours a day is insane. People are going on average through uh, three full shows a week. According to the survey, at least half of us have binged watched an entire TV series in less than 48 hours. Since the outbreak began, 42% of people have shared a password or used someone else's login info to stream. And the top people we are sharing with are a significant other, a friend, a sibling, or our parents. It That is just a disgusting amount of TV to be watching. Listen to the radio. All right. Listen to the radio for eight hours. Don't watch TV for eight hours. Uh, Finally, there's also a new term for uh, people who are just idly sitting by looking for something to do. It's called doom scrolling. It's where you look for, you know, negative COVID-19 stories. Don't doom scroll. There's enough out there right now that can get you anxious and upset. Don't doom scroll, please. 
but it's happening so frequently now. There's a term for it, and of course there is. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. Welcome back to the program, everyone. I want to talk about coronavirus models and crowdsourcing efforts to get as much information as possible in the effort against COVID-19. We talked recently with Dr. Lauren LaPointe-Shaw about the website COVID Near You. There's been a lot of interest in it, but also uh, some people a bit leery of it. Not all experts are in agreement on what the information is telling us about uh, COVID-19 and the best steps forward. If you've been following Twitter, you may have noticed that Dr. Chris Mackey, the medical officer of health for Middlesex London Health Unit, has been critical of some experts in the field. There are bound to be public disagreements, but I think it's important to understand the methods and models that are being used for our benefit. David Fisman is a professor in the Division of Epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. He has been involved in some of these public disagreements, but also has experience in the field. I talked to him recently about this. Here is that conversation. I want to start by just talking about uh, participatory uh, surveillance because it's something I find interesting, uh, but it's not a new practice. It may be new uh, to people as we go through this um, pandemic and seeing new uh, ways information is gathered, but uh, there's a long history of its use, right? Yeah, there there is. Um, You can do this in a few different ways, and, and maybe it's worth backing up just to talk about why we would even want to do this. Um, when we have an epidemic, we often measure the risk or the activity of that epidemic indirectly because it's very hard to, it's not something that you can kind of biopsy or take a a photograph of. Um, When we have epidemics like flu epidemics that we have most years or, or like the COVID pandemic right now, we see that epidemic or that pandemic via the damage that it does. So we view it indirectly. Um, For respiratory infections like COVID or like influenza, one way that we can follow them is with laboratory tests and look at the percent of tests that are positive or the number of tests that are positive. Um, But most people will never get laboratory tests. That that applies to flu and that applies to COVID. So um, sometimes we want different ways to, to, to see the epidemic, to do surveillance for the epidemic. And then we get into alternate and sometimes novel uh, tools for surveillance. Um, One of the tools that's emerged over the last 10, 15 years is digital disease detection, where we can try to track um, epidemics using uh, internet-based approaches, be they participatory surveillance where people uh, log into a website or an app and tell us if they feel sick today. Um, Another method is something called search query surveillance that's been used where we just look at things like how many people are logging into Google and asking Google about symptoms and signs of respiratory infection. Sometimes that works pretty well as a way to to track what's happening with respiratory infections in the population. Um, You don't need to do this by the internet. Uh, Of course, you can also do this by telephone polling. And I believe that right now, as we speak, there's an effort going on by some political pollsters in Canada to call random households and ask them about COVID surveillance. 
And the idea there, as with the internet, is that you're getting information that you wouldn't be able to get from traditional surveillance systems that gives you a fuller picture of what's going on with this disease in the community. Do you find people, when they are presented with this information, if it's online, people uh, get anxious seeing it, or they, they like having the information because people wonder about these types of things anyway? So if we have these uh, the ability to track this and make it available for people people um find that a bit reassuring to see where it is near me because you know flu near you is something that's been around for a while it's that's not necessarily new and so you know to have something like covid near you is pretty much an extension of that yeah no it's exactly the same stuff and it comes from the same same group at at harvard uh, john brownstein is uh a pretty marvelous computer scientist who was really one of the people who invented uh, digital disease detection as, as an ancillary form of surveillance. And he's been doing flu near you for a while. Um, no, I think most people are quite receptive to this. They see, they see that it, it can potentially be quite useful. They look at the testing situation in Ontario and realize we've had trouble tracking this disease because of laboratory capacity. So we need to use the tools that we have some of those tools are traditional surveillance tools, and some of them are novel surveillance tools. There are issues to be addressed, as with um, you know anything on the internet. Privacy is always an issue. Uh, who owns the data? Who holds the data? And I think those those are issues that we're looking at right now in Canada because John's coming from the U.S., so there's some cross-border issues there. Uh, but those are, for the most part, easily resolved. In terms of the privacy issues, I, I think it's always good to remember that many of us voluntarily log into social media sites every day like Facebook and Twitter that harvest a ton of information about us and that we already have um, companies north and south of the border harvesting our cell phone location data that's often coming from, from, uh, from apps that we put on our phones and selling that so that we can actually be tracked. So it's a, it's a bigger conversation around privacy. I, I, I know that, that that seems to have had uh, uh, an unexpected amount of attention with COVID near you, but I think it's important in, in the context of the information people are giving away all the time. Uh, if you're concerned about privacy online, your concern should probably be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and bundling of cell phone information before you get down the list to, to COVID near you. The reaction uh, to some of the information out there I do find interesting uh, in terms of, uh, you know, COVID near you, but also when uh, people see models, uh, there can be lots of information to absorb. There are different scenarios, of course. We see the most extreme, we see the least extreme, we see everything in between. Uh, one of the more extreme scenarios is that 70% of the population could get COVID-19. The fact that doesn't come to pass, though, and we're still not through this, you know, anything could happen, I guess, but we're not on that trajectory right now, based on what I can see, doesn't necessarily mean the model was wrong or it was fear-mongering. I mean, that's what happens with, like, no intervention. Um, it it's just means we took the appropriate steps to avoid some of these most extreme cases, right? Right. No, exactly. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, we had a piece in the National Post a couple of months ago that talked about a base case model for um, COVID-19 where you don't do anything about it. And if you run an infectious disease model with a reproduction number of two and a half, you actually get quite a bit more than 70% of the population infected by the time it's all over. One of the reasons to make a model like that is to compare that baseline scenario 
to scenarios where we actually do intervene and we do physical distancing or social distancing, whatever we're calling it this week, where we add things like contact tracing and, and uh, uh, isolation of cases and quarantine of the contacts so that we can see the counter, what we call the counterfactual. Uh, models give us a platform where we can explore alternate universes where we intervene or don't intervene. And that's very valuable for us in public health because in public health, what we usually produce are what one might call silent public goods. Uh, we, we, uh, our job is to make things not happen. Uh, you see that with vaccination. You see that with our attempts to limit uh, foodborne illness. Um, with efforts around things like chlorination of water, where when you do those things, what you have is non-occurrence of events. We have non-occurrence of measles cases. We have non-occurrence of smallpox on the planet thanks to vaccination. Uh, we have non-occurrence of typhoid deaths in Canada that really dates almost exactly to 1912, which is when we, start, we started um, uh, filtering and then chlorinating water uh, um, in, in Canada, so we didn't have, we weren't basically drinking our own sewage. So the things that we do in public health lead to non-occurrence of events, which sometimes people struggle with, even sometimes uh, some fairly sophisticated people who you wouldn't expect to struggle with these concepts struggle with them. Because what we're doing is we're making things not happen so that, that people can ignore us and forget about us and not worry about public health and just go about their daily lives and enjoy their, their families and, uh, you know, run their businesses and do all the things that you want to do without having to worry about, you know, death and, and illness from communicable diseases. That's what we do. <laughs> Our job is to make stuff not happen. So you see that in the models, the, the, the base model where you have 30 or 70% of folks getting infected with this. Those are, those are scenarios where we're doing very little. Of course, we're doing... Uh, that, that is not what we're doing in response to COVID. We're trying to control this so that we don't lose our friends and loved ones. Usually when we model infectious diseases in a given locale, we don't have a control group. So we can't really validate our models. We just have the model under one, one scenario to compare to the model under the, the other scenario. In the COVID context, we actually do have a control group. And for us in Ontario, our control group is New York State. Um, they're, they're up uh, in the United States. They had about 60 COVID deaths as of March 15th, where a month later, they, they, they're at 33,000 deaths. Um, a lot of those deaths are in, uh, in, in New York, in New York City and surrounding areas. So we actually do have a, a control group, uh, a group that we can look at and say, well, you know, we did physical distancing, social distancing here in Ontario. Um, we didn't have our ICUs overflow. We're not digging mass graves to bury thousands of people. They literally, I, I think two days ago, had 3,700 new deaths in New York City in a day. Um, we don't have that in Ontario. It's not because we're, we're nice. It's not because God likes us more. It's not because we're lucky. It's because we took action earlier with an epidemic, which is an exponential growth process where if you don't take action early, it destroys you. And so we took action early. That didn't happen to us. It may yet happen to us if we let our guard down too soon. But that is the reason why we're not living what New York is living right now.
We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will have more of our conversation with David Fisman. This is The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Good to have you along with us. We are talking to David Fisman from the University of Toronto about uh, some uh, public disagreements that have uh, come out of uh, some interesting efforts to get new information on COVID-19, methods that have been used in the past to get information, methods that we are used to, but methods that have uh, led to some public disagreements. Here is the rest of that conversation with David Fisman. Some of the disagreements that have uh, sprung up online have been interesting for me to see. I know uh, you have been involved in some based on uh, what I see just on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Chris Mackey is the medical officer of health here uh, for Middlesex, London. He has been critical of some of these models on uh, Twitter. Were you surprised to see that? I was uh, because, I, you know, I, 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 I've not met Chris, but, I, you know, I know him by reputation and uh, um, his reputation would be that of someone who's a fairly sophisticated guy who understands how public health works. I have been quite surprised by some of his comments, which have, uh, you know, ranged from the sorts of comments that (laughs) I might get in class from a student who's struggling with the material all the way up to basically ad hominem tax, which has been a little bit bizarre. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what, what's going on with Dr. Mackey. And, um, y- you know, I, I mean, I don't want to personalize this, but I find that most of my contacts and friends who are medical officers of health are very, very busy right now. I think of some folks who I am in contact with um, the five-day turnaround time on an email response is a pretty good turnaround time for them right now because they're drowning in work. So I am surprised uh, at Dr. Mackey's sort of social media presence and the amount of time he seems to be able to, to spend tweeting um, in the middle of a public health crisis. If people read some uh, of his tweets or tweets of anyone uh, who might be seen to downplay the potential of COVID-19, I guess, what is the risk of that? It's, it's, it's maybe not New York City, but it's people where it's, it's just a, a, the curve is longer to flatten, I guess. Well, sure. I mean, I, I, th- I think the major problem with that is it's, it's, it's twofold for me right now in Ontario. One is that you're asking people to do these extraordinary things you know, keep their kids out of school, guess that's not their choice, close their businesses, stay home, stay in their houses, modify their routines, put a lot of effort into flattening this curve, which has been a success. So so everybody in society is a participant in the success that we are enjoying right now in the non-occurrence of a mass casualty event like New York City. I mean, we, we can talk about what's happening in the long-term care care homes at this point, which which is a mass casualty scenario at this point. But in the community, we've not seen that. And credit for that goes to every single, you know, man, woman, and child in Ontario. The difficulty is that if you downplay this and say nothing would have happened anyway, then why on earth are you asking people to go to these extraordinary lengths? Um, You know, if nothing was going to happen anyway, why, why did you ask them to shut their businesses and shut their schools and stay indoors? So there's there's kind of a discord there with the messaging which I think makes it problematic for people to comply with this, especially as this goes on and on. 
And uh, to get back to the long-term care uh, homes, I think some of the difficulty with, with some of the messaging, and, the, and this maybe is not in London, but at the provincial level, um, that I think has directly damaged people relates to things like the idea that this is not out there in the community, which has come from some pretty senior public health, health officials in Ontario. The direct damage I saw from that a couple of weeks ago, and I think this was March 24th when, uh, when this happened, was talking to uh, physician colleagues about outbreaks in long-term care facilities where the care workers felt unwell they felt like they had respiratory infections. They had actually gone online and used the Ontario COVID risk assessment tool, which said, well, you didn't travel and you don't know anyone who has COVID, so you don't have COVID. So those folks kept showing up to work and the result was that the long-term care facility they worked in had an outbreak with death. So I, I think messaging is incredibly important when you're asking people to, um, to change their behavior and when you're asking people, especially younger people, to change their, their work, work practices in ways that, that might protect older people. And, and in that example, I think you, you literally have an example of bad messaging resulting in death, um, which is not what we're supposed to be about. So we need to be honest and transparent with our messaging, and we need to message in ways that let people understand why we are doing what we're doing. Do you think the provincial health officials and like the local health officials are on the same page on this because it seems by and large people seem to be but you mentioned you know that the, the concerns about are uh, they're not being community spread seems as though there's maybe uh, by and for the most part uh, some agreement in terms of messaging but there do seem to be some um, uh, uh, aspects where there's that messaging kind of uh, phrase a little bit Right, and I, and I, I think you've had, you've had a number of excellent local medical officers of health. Um, communities I think of would include Sudbury, Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, who were out of step with the province on the issue of community spread, where uh, those MOHs were saying, this is spreading in our community. Um, some of that was in response to long-term care outbreaks. Some of that was in response to other events. Um, at a time when the province is really doubling down and saying, uh, you know, we're not seeing evidence of community spread. I mean, I'm a clinician. I'm an infectious disease doc uh, um, part, of, part of the time, an epidemiology professor part of the time. I was on service. I think I was involved with my first COVID case uh, on March 17th. Uh, there you had an individual who clearly had acquired this in the community in a, in a mass gathering setting. There was no other risk. And um, at that time, uh, uh, senior provincial health officials were still saying, well, we, we have no evidence of, of, of transmission in the community. I, you know, so either, either um, you had folks who were wrong because they didn't know better, or you had folks who knew better and weren't being straight with Ontarians. And I think either of those is, a, is probably uh, a problematic. Uh, David, I certainly appreciate your time today. Uh, it's um, good to hear from uh, experts such as yourself. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, as a Londoner, <laughs> as someone who went to Central and Western and uh, um, whose folks live in London, um, you know, it's obviously a special place for me because it's my hometown. So it's very nice to, to be able to do an interview uh, for, for, uh, for folks in London. 
That is David Fisman, professor in the Division of Epidemiology at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. We need to pause. When we return, we will have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. Good morning at 7.30. I'm Scott Monick in downtown London. It's mostly cloudy. We are sitting at minus one degree. A moment of silence will be held later this morning for a hospital cleaner who recently died due to complications from COVID-19. We'll have details on the way, but first, we'll check in with the Lexus of London Traffic Centre and Nick Van Overloop. Just some light traffic delays on main roads and intersections inside the city. If you are traveling the major highways, the 401, 402 to Sarnia and 403 to Brantford and Hamilton are trouble-free. As always, if you see a traffic tie-up or collision, call us hands-free in the newsroom at 519-931-6098. And now from the Bentley Hearing Services Weather Center, here's John Wilson. I hate to tell you, but there's more snow coming. The good news is we're right on the northern edges of it, and we won't get much, but probably a coating on grassy surfaces while down toward Lake Erie and Port Stanley, two or three centimeters, Windsor-Chatham as well. However, I mean, it is mid-April. This won't last. It'll melt most of it. Two degrees to high, minus three overnight. Tomorrow it'll be gone, sunny and nine. Sunday, partly sunny, risk of an afternoon or evening shower, though, and 10 degrees. And then Monday, sunny to start at least, and 11. Today's high, too. Right now we are sitting at minus one degree. There is increasing pressure on the federal government to take concrete measures to protect seniors in long-term care homes from COVID-19. Canada's top doctor says half of the victims of the coronavirus lived in a long-term care home. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised earlier this week that the federal government would provide money to top up the wages of essential workers in nursing homes who earn less than $2,500 a month. But since the salaries fall under provincial jurisdiction, Trudeau has been clear that whatever Ottawa does must be in collaboration with the provinces. A moment of silence will be held at 11 o'clock this morning for a hospital cleaner who recently died due to complications from coronavirus. Global's Tina Trujani says tens of thousands of hospital and long-term care workers across the province will pause in his memory. The 58-year-old man died last week where he worked at Brampton Civic Hospital, making him the first hospital employee claimed by the virus. An investigation launched after he tested positive determined he was not exposed at work and that this was likely a case of community spread. Despite that, the union representing the workers will be holding a press conference before this moment of silence. We'll hear from a woman who will talk about the challenges she and her co-workers face disinfecting rooms during an outbreak. QP is calling on the Prime Minister and the Health Minister to do more to protect them in the workplace. Of Ontario's nearly 9,000 confirmed cases, about 11% work in the healthcare system. Tina Trajani, Global News. Nearly 200 bus drivers in London are on unpaid leave amid growing concerns about the COVID 19 pandemic. The Amalgamated Transit Union Division 741 reports that as of Tuesday, 181 drivers have gone on unpaid leave, which represents roughly 40% of all LTC drivers. Earlier in the week, the LTC announced additional service reductions with fewer drivers available. Those reductions will take effect this Sunday. And the University of Waterloo says researchers at the school are working on a DNA-based vaccine against the coronavirus that can be applied through a nasal spray. The school says the vaccine will replicate within bacteria already inside a person's body as it targets tissues in the nose and lower respiratory tract. The university says the vaccine is being engineered to build immunity against COVID-19 and decrease the severity of the symptoms. 
Time now for sports powered by Hanford's Tire and Service. The defending Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues have worked out a four-year extension with newly acquired defenseman Marco Scandella. The deal is worth $13.1 million and has an annual salary cap hit of $3.27 million through the 2023-24 season. Time for a market minute and from the eWorkplace Business Center, here is Blake Lambert. The S&P TSX Composite Index closed down 59 points at 13,899. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 33 points at 23,537. The S&P 500 Index was up 16 points at 2,799, while the Nasdaq Composite was up 139 points at 8,532. Japan's Nikkei surged this morning 604 points to close at 19,894. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 71.08 cents U.S. Coming up next, more of the morning show with Devin Peacock right here on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Cloudy today, light dusting of snow. Uh... High at two, snow won't stick on the ground. Uh, partly cloudy tonight, low minus three. I hope your morning is going along nicely, everyone. Uh, next week, London City staff are set to lay out the full impact, as we know it uh, right now, of the COVID-19 pandemic on city finances. It is not expected to be uh, pretty. Uh, for example, look at Vancouver. Vancouver has already had to make uh, some job and funding cuts. They say more may be necessary if they do not get financial help. Vancouver's mayor, Kennedy Stewart, says the city will look to uh, some unpopular measures to ensure their survival and financial well-being during the coronavirus outbreak. Problem is, cities don't really have a lot of tools at their uh, disposal to uh, boost revenues. For example, 64% of London's key revenue sources come from property taxes. Those currently are being deferred. Another 22% of our key revenue comes from uh, grants from senior government. So there's not a lot of avenues for us to tap into. Cities are going to find themselves between a rock and a hard place. Enid Slack is the director of the Institute on Municipal Finance and Governance. She joins us now. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Good morning. How difficult of a position are municipalities in right now? Well, they are in a pretty difficult position. Um, on the one hand, they're finding their expenditures going up. The emergency response is costing money, uh, providing PPEs, extra cleaning uh, in buildings, uh, fixing their IT system so that people can work remotely from home. So you've got these pressures on the spending side of the budget. And then on revenues, um, you've talked about the limited revenues they have, but they are deferring property taxes in most places. You mentioned that London is is doing that. They're waiving interest and penalties um, for unpaid property taxes and water bills for 60 days. Um, you've got transit fare revenues obviously <laughs> decreasing because people aren't taking transit. You've got recreation centers closed, so there's no user fee revenues there. So they're getting a hit on expenditures. At the same time, um, they're getting a big hit on revenues. And as you probably know, municipalities have to budget, um, cannot budget for an operating deficit. So in their operating budget, uh, they have to plan to balance it. And, you know, they all do that. But of course, uh, when you get surprises like this, uh, you, you are going to find yourself running a deficit. And what that means is you have to make that up the following year. How do you make that up the following years that i mean i just wonder if 
uh, it's some sort of like a, is, is it i don't even know if the term's right is like a bailout from the province is that what's <laughs> maybe a, a, a... Well, well that might help <laughs> um well you know municipalities uh some have reserves that well they all have reserves some have more than others they can dip into their reserves um sometimes they can increase a little bit of the borrowing that they do while they're waiting for uh tax revenues to come in uh but but basically you know when you have to meet those deficits you're either increasing taxes or cutting services how much of uh, a resistance did you think there would be for a city to raise taxes at this time or even if it's for uh, next year, I mean, people hopefully were, were out of it by then, but the impacts of this financially are going to last for quite a while. Well, I think I think you're right, and it's always hard to raise taxes, uh, particularly the property tax uh, is, is a very difficult tax to increase. Um, and we may find that next year that uh, we're st- you know people are still recovering um, in, in from you know what's happened, and to have a, a tax increase on top could be could be quite difficult. I think it would be very hard to do that. It's interesting, you know, like Toronto, I know, has, you know, special uh, municipal powers in terms of taxation that others don't. London does not. Uh, You could say, okay, well, maybe we look at these different powers, but uh, for other municipalities, but even if that were to be something to consider, I'm not saying we should, then that just gets into the whole taxation thing. It's just a user fee is just another, you know, form of tax, which kind of gets into maybe that pushback that municipalities would feel in that hypothetical situation. Well, I think, you know, one of the, the powers that Toronto has is to levy a land transfer tax. And I think those revenues are probably falling um, right now as well. So I, I'm not sure these uh, special powers are all that helpful at this point. Um, again, raising taxes is, is going to be a hard sell with taxpayers. Uh, similarly, raising user fees. And if people have deferred their taxes, uh, they're still going to have to pay them. Right. So if, if they get 60 days or in some places 90 days to pay them, they, they still have to pay them. So um, it's going to be hard to then put an increase on top of that. Is this a situation like anything uh, you're familiar with? It just seems like, I mean, maybe there have been cases from time to time, but, you know, everyone almost in the same position in every province is, um, I, I just don't know what to compare. No, I I can't think of anything like it. I mean, you know, we do have climate change events that occur in particular municipalities. We may have flooding in a particular municipality uh, that puts their finances in peril. But but across the board, an external factor like this um, is not is not that common. Uh, Enid, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That is Enid Slack, director of uh, the Institute on Municipal Finance and Governance. It's a uh, it's a position. I don't know uh, how municipalities are going to get out of, and we will be following the uh, report that is uh, coming out uh, next week with uh, uh, interest. Something uh, that we will also be following is the uh, Corporate Services Committee uh, met recently. They were looking at. You might remember when we did have this budget talks here in London. They they had the original uh, tax increase, which was uh, ended up being over four percent, and then there was all the talk about how well we're going to change the city was going to change the tax rates for different areas. So for you know residential as opposed to commercial, and and on and on. They were looking at that yesterday, but I think the and so that's something we're going to follow up next week as well. 
what I think is interesting is we can reduce it and it looks like it's going to be reduced, you know, down to about two and a half percent for residential uh, taxpayers. But with the crush on, you know, business, it that means if we're reducing it for residential, you're increasing it uh, in other areas. That is uh, just there's there's no escaping it. And so it's something that I think we need to uh, dive into a bit more deeply next week, because if one group is getting a bit of relief, that's great. But that means another group has to pick up the slack. And who has the capability to pick up the slack these days? We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. There are a lot of good things happening in the city, uh, in the province and the country right now. Uh, There are many examples of uh, people helping people, and it's wonderful to see at a time like this. For example, Lifespin, which is a local uh, poverty-fighting agency, has joined forces with On The Move Organics, a local organic food delivery service. They are going to be uh, helping uh, to deliver uh, food to seniors, Uh, People who need to stay home right now can't go out to get food, uh, expecting mothers. Uh, There's a group of people out there who just, you know, uh, need extra help with all of this. The collaboration is called the Community Food Box. The first boxes will be delivered in about 11 days. And uh, already there appears to be a a huge amount of uh, demand. To talk about this, we're joined by uh, Jackie Thompson, the director of Lifespin. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen. Good morning. This is quite the effort. How did it come together? Very quickly. And we're just trying to work out logistics. It was um, just knowing that families shouldn't be going out and their health put them at risk of going out. They just have to very quickly respond to come up with some creative way to get people to have food delivered to their homes to try to keep them safe. They're at risk and and they don't have mechanisms in place to order food from mainstream places, like they don't have credit cards or internet service. So this was a way for people to be able to get into a stream of delivery that would allow them to continue to get food at home throughout this time. What is uh, involved in putting this together? Who do you need, like? You've obviously you got a couple groups together, but how do you organize something like this to make sure you can? Because uh, I it'll be happening at the end of the month. You'll start to do this, but how do you uh, organize this? It's quite the effort. It is an effort, and we're not sure yet. Um, we're really counting on on the Move Organics to take the lead on putting the food boxes together. So they're reaching out to local suppliers and, and getting the best deals for food and, and staple items to get into the boxes. And we've put out the uh, mechanism for folks to let us know that they need this help. And right now we're at 210 boxes and we just launched the program on Thursday. So we, we've now hit more than our target for this month. And, um, Lifespin's been starting to take a list of volunteers that will help with food delivery because if there's that many people in need on the move, probably won't be able to handle the amount of deliveries that are going to be needed to get food out at the end of this month just because they're a business that's already operating at full capacity for their own business with the organic food boxes. This is a completely different box that they set up just to help people that are at risk. 
to have this, you know, start on one day and be, you know, over capacity the next day really does speak to uh, the need in the community. It's a huge need, and all we can do is hope that maybe other partners in the city, and maybe even the city itself, would step up and, and try to put some investment of staff resources and supports in place to help make this um, be able to help as many families that really do need to have that help. We don't want people going into the downtown core to get that kind of help. We want them to stay home, and we don't want them in grocery stores. You don't want to see someone with their oxygen tank shopping in the grocery store. We, we need to make resources available for them to stay home and be safe and we get the food to them. That's a caring community and, and we can do this. We just all have to, to work together to make it happen. What will be included in each uh, food box? I don't know. Um, Organics on the Move is sourcing the products to go in the boxes. They're creating a, a staples box that will be specific to try to give people what they need and, and keep them at, at home through supplying the things that they they need that are above and beyond just fresh fruits and vegetables. Is this something uh, people get for free or need to pay for? Is partially funded or, or do you need uh, funding donations to help out? Uh, what's what's the situation like on, on that aspect? So our hope is they're just creating a portal for us to be able to do the orders through. And if, if we can cover the first box for people, it will get them into the system and then they can continue to order and they can decide how much food they need. So if it's a larger family, they might want to order two boxes a month. Um, so we we are taking donations to help people get the first box. We've had um, a good partnership with the Ontario Student Nutrition Program who stepped up to uh, support 600 families, so 150 families each month that have school-aged children um, that aren't accessing nutrition programs at school, they'll be able to get their first box three with the funding from them. And we've started a funding campaign on Canada Health to help us get the boxes to folks for the next four months as well. It's it's a interesting point you make about the the student nutrition program. You know, we've talked about on this program just last week about uh, you know food insecurity. You know, schools being closed. Uh, people sometimes surprised with people that you know closes off an avenue for a lot of kids to get you know a regular meal. Sometimes with the food insecurity we do see in this community, so there is a lot of that uh, that's prevalent in London, unfortunately. Yes, we deal with high risk families in living in poverty all year round and the difference big difference at this time is they can access all the programs that enable them to get through on those really small fixed incomes every month so they're not going to um, get the nutrition programs at school they're not going to the community centers to have the meals they're not going to the senior center to have the community meals they're they're not getting to the food banks that were in community centers that have closed so they're, they're just not being able to access all the little things that they spend a lot of time accessing to get through the month. So it's costing them more to stay at home, whereas us working folks, we're saving money by staying at home. We're saving on transportation. We're not going out and spending money on entertainment, and we're getting lots of really nice home-cooked meals with their families at home. So we're referring to that as an isolation dividend, and if you have an isolation dividend, you have that extra money because you're at home and you have an opportunity to contribute it to someone that it's costing them more to be at home, then we've set up a mechanism for you to be able to help. So you might not be able to come out and volunteer to deliver boxes or pack boxes, 
But if you have that extra money, please go to the uh, LifeSpin webpage and get in there and, and support a box for another family. And you can also sign up. Um, there's a volunteer form on the Contact Us link if you do have the capacity to go out and, and help us with some of this. That was going to be my next question, where people can go for more information to apply or to help out or donate. So just go to the Lifespin uh, website, and uh, you can get all the information you need. Yes, it's www.lifespin.org. And we also have lots of information on what resources are out there um, for people like the the Ministry of Education has a, a fund that you can set up if you need support to, to access to do some of this homeschooling with your kids as well as the provincial and federal monies that are available to low-income folks to try to help them get through this. Jackie, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. It's uh, it's good to see. Thank you for reaching out. That is uh, Jackie Thompson, director of Lifespin. We need to pause. We come back. We'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. We are into the third hour of the program. Good morning, everybody. Uh, cloudy today, light dusting of snow expected. Not going to stick on the ground. Don't worry. A high at two. Uh, partly cloudy tonight, a low minus three. Sunny on Saturday, high nine. Partly sunny on Sunday, high ten. Could have a uh, risk of a, a shower later on in the day. Uh, partly sunny on Monday, high of 11. These are interesting times. Uh, United States uh, President uh, Donald Trump uh, said earlier this week that he is prepared to support easing travel restrictions along the Canada-U.S. border sooner rather than later. Uh, feeling may not be mutual, though. I uh, I know I'm uh, ready to keep the Americans out for a little while longer, to say the least. Uh, while speaking, Trump said Canada is doing well in its efforts to control the spread of the virus. In the same breath, he uh uh, said that uh, our success is seemingly similar to their success, which we've had more success uh, at uh, squashing this than the Americans. I mean, we still have uh, problems here, obviously. We still have it ongoing. We have not reached our peak yet, although we might be soon in Ontario. It is uh, far from over. The two countries uh, did negotiate a mutual ban on non-essential travel in both directions in mid-March, an agreement that explicitly exempted the uh, flow of uh, trade and commerce, as well as vital nurses who live and work on opposite sides of the border. That agreement is due to expire early next week. So it started uh, March 21st. It ends April 19th. So we'll see if there is an extension. Uh, there are talks going on. You know, the uh, some of the talks uh, look like it's probably likely there will be an extension. Some of that extension discussion revolves around whether it's you know a two week extension, maybe it's another month. I would hope I would be more than a month to be. But if we just have to go month by. Now, where Ontario is, uh, Quebec, like Ontario, Quebec are the epicenter. Uh, Canada, United States. So Michigan's also been uh, hit uh, pretty bad. 
So our proximity to New York and Michigan, both Ontario and Quebec, it would make sense in some world where part of the border reopens, but in other parts, at the very least, uh, the bar- the border between Ontario and New York, Ontario and uh, Michigan should be remaining closed for a while. Uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, gave his thoughts on this uh, yesterday. Uh, when asked what uh, we should do, he said uh, Trudeau should say no right away. We need to have our borders closed. I agree. We also share a border. Uh, don't so um, we should keep the border closed for a while to non-essential travel at the very least. I do not want to see that reopening anytime soon. But uh, with Trump, I mean, that is sort of the the question, right? He really wants to do something maybe by May 1st. And that is uh, not something I am all that eager to see. Don't know about you guys, but I would prefer we uh, we just hold off on that. Something that's been going around I don't, online recently, I think noting, there are reports, shows are investigating the the secretly manufactured lab. Those reports, you got to question. First off, be careful where those reports are coming from, because there is no significant uh, scientific evidence to support that theory. Scientists who have studied the virus have already dispelled that aspect. They say bats are the likeliest source, suggesting that it was created by nature, not humans. And the reason they can say that with a lot of certainty is if you go to the molecular level, the genetic closely resembles one that already exists in horseshoe bats in China's Hunan province. So the discovery, which is backed up by several independent studies, do viruses and have been linked to past outbreaks, including SARS, MERS, and Ebola. So it's likely that this from uh, a bat, like a dog, a snake, or something else, and then infected humans. There are this was created in a lab. Uh, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, for the United States publicly uh, speculated that there is a lab uh, that is uh, very close in proximity to the Wuhan market that is believed to be the, the center for this. But and they were doing some, you know, some some research. Experts have said, though, it's not unusual for that lab or labs like it to conduct that kind of research they were doing. China has been studying coronaviruses and bats since SARS. So for the past 17 years. Top U.S. intelligence officials have also cast doubt on the theory that the virus was man-made. So be careful where you're seeing some of those reports because they are not backed up by science. We will talk more about how we reopen our society, our economy, and more after the break. So we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning.
Good morning, everybody. Happy to have you along with us on the program. It's been a couple of weeks where we've had Canadians uh, hold up inside their homes, unable to go to work in many cases or school or working from home and schooling from home as we work to flatten the curve of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The question is being asked, though, in increasing frequency, uh, when things will return to normal and how we will do that. We heard uh, from uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this week. It'll be weeks before the country can seriously consider uh, loosening some restrictions. Uh, One concern I do hear from people, and one I would uh, share myself, is if we release the restrictions too early, we would undo a lot of the work we have uh, done already. We have made progress with all of this. Let's not undo it. So to talk about this, we are joined by Craig Janes, the Director of the School of Public Health and Health Systems at the University of Waterloo. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Good morning. What's a general time for when you think the restrictions uh, could be lifted? Uh, June or July is typically what we kind of hear. Is is that about right? Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that estimation. Of course, the virus is going to tell us. Um, we certainly would want to see a couple good two, three, four weeks of, of infections either flattening off or reducing before we really start considering um, kind of uh, gradually loosening things up. You mentioned gradually, and that's what I've heard pretty consistently. That's how this plays out. What does a gradual loosening kind of look like? Uh, the term often is uh, is used as soft social distancing and some and some of these uh, uh, discussions and th- what that means is that we start thinking about opening up more workplaces uh, schools uh, and daycare centers will probably have to find some way to open up if we're going to you know people are going to go back to work then we also need to think about schools and daycares so how do we organize those settings so that uh, distancing can be maintained, which means smaller classrooms. Do you alternate days that kids go to class? Do you, what what controls or what safeguards do you put in place to keep teachers safe and and that sort of thing? So it'll be a lot of um, kind of gradual thinking about how we do this, sending kids back to school, but maybe in modified uh, schedules, um, opening up those uh, workplaces where people can um, you know stay apart from one another and be safe. Uh, and so forth. So that's probably what we're we're looking at. It's an understatement to say, but it's 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 a difficult proposition just because of how interconnected everything is. In you know, as you say, schools, daycares affect work, and and vice versa. Just as a small example. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what would reopen first? Uh, is it is it some businesses? Do you think? Do we maybe start elective surgeries again in some cases, or or how do we think about our hospitals? Uh, yes, I, I think that some uh, businesses, you know, could probably safely open, um, you know, where you have uh, spaces where you know employees can, uh, you know, work uh, without uh, and 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 adhere to uh, distancing guidelines, that sort of thing. In terms of hospitals, um, it's a really good question. Um, I think that the number of elective surgeries were postponed, um, and I know that some cancer treatments have been postponed and that sort of thing. And I think it probably. Uh, would be useful to start thinking about how to um, kind of go back to some degree of, of normal service in hospitals, um, assuming that that you know there'd be some kind of priority given to those. You know, elective, all elective surgeries are not the same. Some are more important or more critical than others. And I think beginning to prioritize those and opening up hospital beds for those folks uh, will be important. 
There's been a lot of focus on social distancing, making people stay home, of course. When we do start to have these loosening of restrictions, people are going to want to socialize, get together with one another. One place people can do that is at restaurants. Mm -hmm. Do restaurants operate the way they did before or maybe in a sort of reduced capacity, do you think, until we really have a vaccine? Yeah, I think probably reduced capacity uh, is what we're looking at. Um, I have seen some actually quite creative things that restaurants have done in places like Hong Kong, where restaurants have actually installed plexiglass plates on, on uh, or, or panes of plexiglass on tables so that people can sit together at a table, but they're separated by, by glass. I don't know that we'll go that far, but um, uh, I do think we could probably return to going to restaurants, but we'll have to be in in places where tables can be set further apart, that uh, there would be some kind of protections in place. And, and of course, servers would need to have uh, protections. And, and I don't know if that means that they would have to wear masks and that sort of thing. But, but I think restaurants may be one of the last places to really open up and return to normal. One of the uh, biggest decisions uh, the federal government will have to make is what we do at the uh, U.S. border, where I imagine there'll be a ton of pressure from the United States to push that. I don't know how the government kind of works that dynamic, where you might have one country that's worse off than us, but more eager to reopen the border. Yeah, that's going to be, I think, a big issue uh, in the coming weeks, because there will be a lot of pressure. And of course, uh, you know, there's, we're so economically interconnected uh, with the U.S., we're wanna, going to want to uh, keep the, get that border open probably as soon as we can. In order to do that, I think we really need to have testing uh, in place um, and rapid testing um, and make sure that if people are crossing, uh, particularly from heavy-hit places, you know, Michigan uh, is really experiencing quite a significant epidemic now. Um, and so we'd want to be careful with people crossing from Michigan into Canada. Uh, we'd want to test them. We'd want to quarantine uh, and isolate folks that, that have been exposed. And that's going to take a pretty significant investment in infrastructure, I think. Uh, we talked earlier about how the virus dictates when we can start to loosen some of these guidelines. Is it possible at some point in the year they start to ramp back up based on what happens with the virus and uh, a second wave or versions of waves? Uh, yes, I think that's the that's the concern, uh, especially if we were to loosen up too quickly that we'd see a second surge and then we'd be back to where we, we were. Um, and historically, we know that, um, you know, just based on our, you know, we're in uncharted territory, so a lot of our knowledge comes from looking historically at things like the 1918 influenza epidemic. Uh, those cities that were successful in flattening the curve in 1918 loosened up too quickly, and then suddenly they had another spike that was just almost as bad as the first one. So we don't want to be in that situation because then we're stressing our hospital systems and everything else. So we want to be in a situation where we can keep that curve pretty flat. Um, and so we really don't want to be get ourselves into a situation where we're having to open up, then close down, open up, and then close down. So I think this idea of really gradual opening, testing to make sure that we have things under control, making sure our public health uh, folks have the resources they need to do contact tracing and so forth, really to keep that you know, another surge from happening uh, is really important. This is hard maybe to answer then just based on that. If we are successful in the next couple of weeks and we can wind down, if we do have a second wave of some degree, do you think it's possible to avoid the kind of social distancing we have right now in the fall or winter? 
I guess it depends probably on the severity. Um, and again, uh, if, if uh, you know, we're able to contain the infection, uh, again, this is going to require some, you know, that we're doing a lot more testing than we're now doing. So we know who's infected, who's, who's immune, and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, if, if we can contain these kind of infections in clusters and so forth and isolate and quarantine people without having to put undue stress on our health system, I don't think we'd have to return to the kind of severe restrictions that we have in place now. Uh, Craig, I really appreciate your time and your expertise on this. Uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you. That is Craig Janes, Director of the School of Public Health and Health Systems at the University of Waterloo. We need to pause. We come back. We'll have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. On the show yesterday, uh, the issue of control came up. We were talking to uh, Lisa Russo from Fanshawe College about retraining in new careers as people suffer job loss as a result of the pandemic. She said the beginning of a search for a new job can give people control where they don't have it right now, which I think is a good point. We, we've talked about how people are feeling anxious People are feeling tired as a result of the social distancing. I don't think the average person had a real idea of what we were in store for, how long this might last. There were predictions, of course, but they are often met with a scoff with people not really believing it, which is understandable. I'm not, you know, criticizing you if you were in that category. We've never been in this position before. You don't know what to expect. However, if you look at how we're doing, especially as opposed to, say, New York, uh, the steps we are taking are making a difference. Uh, to talk about this and the you know positive messaging and uh, messaging in general around this, we are joined by Cynthia Carr, Principal Consultant and Epidemiologist at EPI Research. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Good morning. Do you see people starting to get restless, maybe a little annoyed at the social distancing guidelines staying in place longer than expected? Absolutely. And of course, uh, if we were watching the news yesterday, we see some of the states in the United States, people are actually out protesting, which we don't want to see here. That's not productive, but it is understandable. Um, you know, there's really, to your point about not really understanding what we're getting into, there's nothing really more stressful than feeling out of control and uncertainty and hearing sort of things might change, but we're not sure when and are things getting better or worse because, you know, there's so much data coming at us. So people are feeling that restlessness, that anxiety, that, you know, we're used to planning ahead. We're used to knowing what we're doing next week, at least to some extent. And um, it, it, is, it is challenging for people, but it really does matter. And then I happened to read an article, which was interesting, we learned about how much is collected about us. Google, um, some of their mapping technologies is actually showing that Ontario is doing some of the best work in, in actually complying with social distancing. Um, they, they track, you know, people going to the stores and things like that. So Ontario residents are doing the right thing and it is tough, but we're going to get through it. How do we balance that message in terms of showing, yes, we're doing the right thing, we're making a difference, mm -hmm. while also making sure people continue to do that because we don't want to let up and let it get away from us? That's right. There's an absolute tendency to want to do that. And we're hearing about the three-staged approach in the USA to start returning to normal. But with that, the number one priority is that 
there must be, uh, every state must show that they can quickly and efficiently set up screening and test sites. And we know that that is an area um, where Ontario has been a little bit um, working at a less optimal capacity than would be uh, wanted uh, in terms of your testing. So even though you are doing a good job because of, of, of you know us all working together and doing our part, if we start moving back together, particularly in the absence of a, a more efficient um, testing system where you can look at both screening and testing when people are symptomatic and then testing when people feel well to get a sense of are people developing immunity, we're just not there yet. As this has revolved, we've seen, you know, real reason for concern in long-term care facilities. How do we share helpful information to better understand what we need to do to protect the elderly, but also make good decisions about finding the right place for our loved ones in the first place? Right. And that's a challenge for so many of us. I'm actually a great deal of my family live in London. My grandfather lived in a long-term care facility there. Um, and so my family did go through that process as well. So we are hearing some pretty tragic news out of some facilities. And what we need to know is kind of what to look for and where those triggers can be because we sort of had a, a projected number of deaths uh, in this pandemic, which kind of went up this week. But some of that is due to this unanticipated um, wave of mortality in a very specific uh, location, which is in our long-term care homes. And we want to make sure that every resident from youngest to oldest is safe and protected. And um, so that's something that's kind of come out. So that's kind of a, a co-occurring or, or a threat occurring at the same time as this pandemic that we're learning about. So when we look at um, facilities for our loved ones, from other work that I've done, it might be surprising to hear, but when we looked at work life, which is uh, morale and training and communication of staff, and correlated that to a patient safety survey and then to another satisfaction survey, one of the highest risks for poor outcomes in a facility was actually lack of communication. Lack of communication between the staff within the facility and between the staff and family and uh, the clients or patients there. So when you're thinking about um, care homes, it's not just the cost, it's not just how pretty it is, is the lawn nice, is it on a lake? Those things are, are lovely, but what you want to know is when you walk in, is it clean? Now, a facility working at lower than optimal capacity, they will focus on that, the, keeping it kind of looking clean. So you've got to look beyond that too. So is it clean is key, but what I was thinking about, what, based on what we've learned in Quebec, where staff did not feel empowered, they didn't feel trained, they literally stopped coming to work. And there had been high rates of absenteeism before that. So what can we learn from the staff themselves? I was thinking about when we look at a facility, we tend to look up reviews of the facility. But what we should do first is go to employment websites, go to Indeed and other sites where they staff, because often there will be reviews of that organization by the staff. And if the staff are giving it low reviews, you don't want your family there. So look at reviews by uh, the staff. Obviously, look at other reviews by patients and families. 
ask when you come in, what is your communication plan? Do you have a designated staff member that I can speak to at all times? Do you post uh, weekly your absentee rates? You should have had 15 staff here today and you have 10 so that I can get a sense uh, that something might be going on uh, within the care facility relating to staff, which of course would put my family at risk. So there's, there's many things that we can think of in terms of our, our family safety because in a pandemic when the doors are shut and the staff don't come in and the family can't, can't come in, that really does leave people vulnerable. Going to a job site is a great idea. It's a non-traditional place to look, but probably mm-hmm. gives uh, some good insight. I would think so because, you know, there's ratings, but then there's also comments. And I happen to glance at some of the facilities that um, – have been identified thus far as problematic in Canada. And I was actually shocked that my little idea seemed to bear out right in front of me. It's a really interesting advice. Cynthia, I appreciate your time and your perspective today. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. That is uh, Cynthia Carr, Principal Consultant and Epidemiologist at EPI Research. We need to pause. When we come back, we will have more of The Morning Show with Devin Peacock on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Cloudy today. High at 2. Could get a little bit of snow. Not much. Don't worry about it. Going to warm up uh, tomorrow. High at 9. Sunny. High at 10. Partly sunny on Sunday. uh, Partly sunny on Monday. High 11. Here are your locally owned and awesome businesses for today, courtesy of Ontario West Insurance Brokers. Uh, we want to recognize uh, Bernie's Bar and Grill in uh, Byron. You can find them online at berniesbarandgrill.com. Phone number is 519-471-7098. They're located at 1290 Byron Baseline Road. Uh, who's ordering uh, takeout? Uh, well, if you want to do it tonight, hey, Friday, why not? They're open for takeout through Uber Eats uh, between 4 and 9 p.m. They're also offering uh, $5 pints and $4 bottles with your takeout. Uh, business uh, number two, speaking of beer, is uh, Forked River Brewing Company. I can find them if you want to order online at store.forkedriverbrewing.com. The uh, retail at the brewery is open uh, Tuesday through Saturday, 12 to 6. Curbside pickup is available using in-store pickup option online for them. They do have free delivery in London and orders $50 or uh, more. London free ship, that's L-N-D-N free ship, and orders over $100 province-wide. They're located at 45 Pacific Court uh, in London. A uh, great way to support uh, local businesses in the community, and uh, you know what? It's been a nice, uh, it's been a long week. Uh, why not uh, relax on Friday, crack open a beer, if you partake, and uh, enjoy yourself. I want to end the show with a bit of some, you know, lighter news. A woman in Italy was fined for breaking lockdown rules there because she took her pet turtle for a walk. How much do you think? she was charged how much was the fine i'll tell you it was 440 bucks i tell you i if i had a pet turtle right now during the lockdown i would not be walking the turtle i'd be eating the turtle i'd be making some turtle soup 
Uh, if you're in Italy, you need to have a justifiable, re justifiable reason to be out in the street right now. Walking your uh, dog does count as a justifiable reason to leave your home. Walking your turtle uh, does not. Uh, there's a woman out there who wrote in to an advice column for help because she is under lockdown with her brother-in-law and says she's extremely attracted to him. Uh-oh. Both her and her husband and the brother-in-law's wife are there as well. The advice columnist recommended setting boundaries, avoiding being alone with the brother-in-law, and trying to work on her sex life with her husband. That does not seem like it's going to end well. That also seems like it's got to be made up. Who writes in uh, for, I mean, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I mean, there's um, some interesting people out there. But uh, help, I'm attracted to my brother-in-law. Whoops. A couple in Australia have were uh, fined uh, more than $1,000 after they posted some old vacation photos. And the police thought they were recent and they uh, were violating a ban on non-essential travel. The fine was eventually rescinded, but only after local media got involved. So uh, kudos to the local media in Australia after a couple got improperly fined. A guy in Indiana was waiting for his stimulus money from the United States government. Uh, he was waiting for $1,700 to arrive in his bank account. What he got instead? $8.2 million. <laughs> He, uh, he was honest. He called his bank and the money was uh, taken back. He got his stimulus and said, it'd be tempting to keep that $8.2 million, but there's a lot of stories out there where uh, you do that, you can, get in, uh, you can get in some trouble for that for obvious reasons. A couple in India, this might be my um, frustrating story of the day. There's a couple in India have named their new baby Sanitizer. They see it as their contribution to the fight against the coronavirus. Their child's name is Sanitizer. Other parents have, and this is true, named their child Lockdown and Corona. Sanitizer, Lockdown, Corona. I don't know what to say I, other than I, uh, I intensely hate that couple naming your child sanitizer. Apparently there's a new uh, thing going around where people have a lot of isolation envy. People are now jealous of other people's homes because of a lockdown. We're on, uh, we're on video chats all the time. People are post posting, you know, selfies on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. You can't be out at the gym and do it anymore. You can't be out at a, you know, some cafe and take a nice Instagram, put your filter on. People can't be on vacation right now and uh, have a filter on for your picture. So we're doing it at home. People are taking pictures, rearranging their house, making it look perfect. Uh, they're taking pictures of the food they're making, all sorts of stuff. And uh, apparently people are getting envy, which is just silly. Here's the weirdest uh, thing I've seen. Uh, the uh, Coronado National Forest in Arizona, they've uh, locked their bathrooms because of uh, COVID-19 as part of social distancing. It's their way to encourage people to stay at home. 
The problem they're finding is people are still going to the forest. The forest is still open. They've just closed some areas where social distancing is not feasible. So bathrooms are one of the areas they've closed. People are still going to the forest, though, and enjoying the outdoors. And what people are doing is they are going to the washroom and then taking their waste and leaving it at outside bathrooms. So a new they had to release a news release asking people not to do this. They had to release a news release asking people to not deposit your solid wastes outside or surrounding the restrooms. They said, if necessary, bury your human waste at least six to eight inches deep and 200 feet away from water, trails, and recreation sites to prevent health hazards to our employees and other visitors. What are they doing in Arizona? Number one, to be doing that, but also, how are you carrying it? I'm going to let that one marinate. Uh, there are people, if you want uh, to, uh, for your next Zoom meeting, you can have a llama or a goat join you for your next Zoom meeting for 65 bucks. There is a, a couple out of California. They've got a farm looking for some ways to raise some cash, I guess. If you want to have a goat or a llama during your next, you know, you know, corporate Zoom meeting, you can invite the, them on. You can also have a... Uh, a video tour of their farm for 250 bucks. There are other ways I would spend my money, but to each their own. My thanks to uh, David Fisman, to Enid Slack, to uh, Jackie Thompson, Craig Janes, and Cynthia Carr for coming on today's show. Thanks to Jacqueline Carbone, our content producer, Nick Van Overloop, our technical producer, and Steve Spruill, our engineer. Stay tuned for the Craig Needle Show coming up next, followed by London Live with Mike Stubbs and the afternoon show with Jess Brady. Have a great day. Enjoy the weekend. Stay safe. We'll be back in 69 hours.